The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. After about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, his face was altered and his clothes became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared with him in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and the disciples were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who were with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He knew not what he was saying. As he was speaking, the cloud overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud, and from the cloud a voice spoke. This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, they found Jesus alone. And they were silent, and they said nothing to anyone in those days of what they'd seen. And on the next day, as they'd gone down the mountain, great crowds met Jesus. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let us pray. Father, we believe that you inspired Luke to record these words. We believe, Father, they have power not only in Luke's day, but they have power today because they are inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so we pray, come Holy Spirit, open this word to us, perhaps as never before, that we would be changed more and more to be like Christ. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, welcome to CAST, CAST Sunday. It's on the front of your bulletin. You've been hearing about this for weeks. People have asked me, what is uh, CAST really all about? Well, some people believe that CAST is some kind of secret acronym that you're supposed to understand here, that somehow it stands for something like, you know, Christians adoring their savior together, uh, maybe cultured Anglicans sipping tea, or maybe a Canadian actor sings theology. But CAST is actually not an acronym. CAST is simply titled as such. It's a moment, it's a moment once a year to cast a vision. It's a moment once a year uh, to cast a net, if you think of Luke chapter 5, casting a net missionally. But it's also called cast because this is once a year a call uh, to cast a production, to cast a show. In other words, God's got a work he's doing in this world and he's casting you and I in our various roles within it. So this is what cast is, an annual moment to, in an intentional way, talk about what the Lord is leading us to as a community. Where is the Lord leading us at Christ Church Plano? Well, it's amazing that this Sunday fell on the Sunday of the Transfiguration. We just read that passage from Luke chapter 9. And if you're there with me, you'll see that in this text, we will in fact find the answer to the question, 
Where is the Lord leading us? The answer is right in the text, Luke chapter 9. So Luke 9, it's a transfiguration moment. We read that in verse 29, that Jesus is transfigured before them. As he was praying, his face was altered and his clothes became dazzling white. We'll talk more about the transfiguration of Jesus in a moment. But most importantly, verse 31, Moses and Elijah are there. And it says they were speaking to him about his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem, his departure. Now, the word is actually exodus. Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus about his exodus, which he's about to accomplish at Jerusalem. It's a loaded word, intentionally so for Luke. You see, with the exodus, this central moment in Israel's history, this moment where God came and rescued them from slavery in Egypt, Now Moses and Elijah are on this Mount of Transfiguration talking about Jesus' new exodus. But this exodus won't be an exodus from slavery in Egypt. This will be an exodus he will accomplish at Jerusalem to free us from sin and death. This is the new exodus which Jesus is bringing about as he goes to Jerusalem. But then Peter puts his foot in his mouth. Peter is a little sleepy, and in verse 33, it says that he comes up with this brilliant idea. He says, Master, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And he kind of gets rebuked by this. The cloud approaches, God speaks to him. Peter's being rebuked for this suggestion about making tents for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. And the question is, and here's my point, Why is Peter being rebuked for suggesting that he build some tents? And here it gets to the point of what we are called to do. See, Peter's problem is that he wanted to stay on the mountain. Peter was experiencing this incredible moment with God, and he wanted to stay there. He wanted to build structures so they could keep this prayer meeting going. And yet the reality is, that down the mountain were the crowds and the people who desperately needed this exodus that Moses and Jesus and Elijah were talking about. You see, the objects of Jesus' salvation are down the mountain. Peter is rebuked for wanting to stay on the mountain, but his new exodus, this new exodus that Jesus is about to win is for the people down the mountain. They can't stay on the mountain. They can't stay cloistered. They can't stay safe. They've got to come down the mountain. Look what happens in verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down the mountain, a great crowd met Jesus. In other words, he comes down the mountain and this massive crowd is there immediately. They are hungry for what he has. There is a world around us desperate for the gospel, desperate for this new exodus that Jesus is bringing about. And so where is the Lord calling us here at Christ Church? He's calling us to come down the mountain. The Lord is calling us to come down the mountain. There's a world around us that's desperate for the gospel. People who are unchurched, 
people who are formerly church, people who are lost from church, people who hate church, around us desperate to be reached with the gospel. We have to come down the mountain. That's the vision. That's the call. But how do we do it effectively? Well, that's in the text, thankfully, as well. See, if we come down the mountain, how do we come down the mountain effectively? How is God calling us strategically to come down the mountain? Well, we see in this text three things. To come down the mountain effectively, we, Christ Church, we need to be discipled. We need to be discipled if we're to come down the mountain effectively. But we also need to be distinct. We need to be distinct, not like everybody else. And not only do we need to be discipled, not only do we need to be distinct, but we need to be deployed. We need to be deployed in mission. And so as we come down the mountain, let's look at this. To come down the mountain, Christ Church, we need to be discipled. Look at verse 28. It says that now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter, James, and John and went up the mountain to pray. Now, Peter, James, and John are part of the inner circle of the disciples, the, the closest of the close ones around Jesus. But the key thing is they're disciples. And that's a key term, disciple. It doesn't just mean believer. It doesn't just mean follower. It means someone who is intentionally growing as a student, as an apprentice, seeking to have Jesus' own life grow more and more in them. They are seeking to be like their master, their disciples. And we use this term discipleship a lot here at Christ Church. And we do it intentionally. Discipleship is not just a status. Discipleship is an activity, something we're busy about. You see, the problem we're seeing more and more is that Christians in our current age are losing our edge more and more with rapid secularization going on around us. Rapid secularization. We're losing our edge. Michael Spencer wrote these words some years ago. He says, we are on the verge within 10 years of a major collapse of evangelical Christianity. Millions of evangelicals will quit church. Why is this going to happen? We evangelicals have failed to pass on to our young people an orthodox form of faith that can take root and survive the secular onslaught. Ironically, the billions of dollars we've spent on youth ministers, Christian music, publishing, and media has produced a culture of young Christians who know next to nothing about their own faith except how they feel about it. Our young people have deep beliefs about the culture war, but do not know why they should obey scripture, the essentials of theology, or the experience of spiritual discipline and community. Coming generations of Christians are going to be monumentally unprepared and ignorant for culture-wide pressures. He predicted that in 10 years, and he wrote it in 2009, this is the 10th year that he was predicting. It's happening. Maybe this is why the Lord gave you a Canadian rector. You see, in Canada, we're 10 to 15 years further along this secularizing agenda. I've seen the future. I know what can come even, yes, to Texas in the Bible belts. 
We need to have a church of disciples who are growing in formation, growing with strength to stand against the cultural onslaught for the sake of the culture around us, for the sake of the people around us. And we see this at Christ Church in our discipleship ministries. Look at our adult discipleship ministries. We have these courses, these classes, Wednesday nights, foundations, Anglican essentials, Bible studies. These are not just about checking a box to say, I've done my Bible study for the week. These classes are discipleship school moments. We are growing people bit by bit, moment by moment, into stronger, more thriving Christian disciples. Later this year, we are gonna be hiring an adult discipleship curate. Father Brian Beebe is doing a wonderful job in this area. And we're expanding this area for more opportunities, more programming, more formation. But also look at our family discipleship, our nursery all the way to the end of high school and even into parenting ministries. Today we have Dr. Ken Wilgus offering one of our Partnering with Parents seminars. We are determined to be building a curriculum that we can show from nursery all the way to parenting ministry. This is what we are doing in each age and stage of a child and adolescence development so they can grow as disciples of Jesus Christ. We'll be bringing on a family minister later this year who will be able to form this curriculum, to be able to deliver this and identify it for all of us. Here is what we're doing at each age with our children. Discipleship. And the goal of all of this is, is again, not just to check a box, not just to say, wow, that's great, I got a little more knowledge. This is about being equipped for ministry. It's about being identified vocationally. What is your role within the body of Christ? How do we form you in that? How do we launch you into that? Discipleship. If we're going to come down the mountain and be effective, we need to be more discipled. We had 95 confirmants this year. 95 people who went through our Anglican Foundations program and were confirmed, either received or reaffirmed or confirmed within our church. Folks who've decided to make this moment, this moment of discipleship here at Christ Church their own. And we encourage you, if you haven't taken things like foundations, you really should take foundations. See, we want to have a strong body of believers. I I love how C.S. Lewis once wrote, he said, my prayer is that when I die, all hell rejoices that I am out of the fight. When I die, my prayer is that all hell rejoices that I'm out of the fight. That is a disciple. If we come down the mountain, we need to be discipled. We need to come down the mountain. We need to be discipled, but we also need to be distinct. See, it's one thing to be discipled. It's another thing then to be distinct. Look at verse 29. Again, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothes became dazzling white. Dazzling here literally means lightning. His clothes became like lightning. Matthew and Mark use this word transfigured. They say he was transfigured before them. He was changed before them. What are all these different metaphors pushing at? What are they seeing? Well, they're seeing the glory of God. 
What they're seeing on display before them is God's glory, all of his majesty and power and might on display visibly in Jesus. Peter himself will go on years after this in 2 Peter chapter 1 to talk about to talk about what they saw on that mountain. He says this, he says, for we did not follow clearly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of, here's the key word, eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, <coughs> and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on that holy mountain. They saw his majesty. They saw his glory. And see, this is one of the challenges we have as a church always, is how do we put on display before the world both the intimate, personal relationship that God wants to have with each and every person, but also to display his majesty and his glory. How do we display God both personal and majestic at once? And I think our Anglican tradition actually does this incredibly well. It makes us distinct, I think, in our region. Our ability to hold together these two realities, personal and yet majestic. Biblical preaching with sacramental worship. You can come into a place like ours and experience a clear devotion to the unhindered word of God being proclaimed, but to do so liturgically and sacramentally. We see the personal call of God, and yet we behold his majesty. This is what Anglican worship does so well. We had a girl visit our church in Ottawa a number of years ago. And I was sitting there uh, during the sermon and I could just tell she was a newcomer and I could tell that she really didn't like what was going on. She was glaring at me the whole time and just did not look happy. And, and, and you know, just the way she was dressed and all the rest, I was like, this is not the typical person to walk into a church on Sunday morning. And I made a beeline over to her at the end of the sermon and I said, hey, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. And she said, you know, I didn't really like a lot of what you said. I said, fair enough. And she said, but I'm looking for God. And I said, fair enough, okay. And I said, why here? Why did, are you looking for God here? I mean, we're in this, at that time in Ottawa, in this stone building that's freezing cold in the winter and you know, boiling hot in the summer, stained glass windows, which means pretty dim and dark, you know, a guy standing there wearing a dress. I said, why would you come into our church to look for God? I said, you know, down the road, there's a church that meets in a movie theater. Across the road, there's a church that has a hologram preacher. You know, just over on the other side of the block, there's a really a rock and roll kind of concert that happens on Sunday morning why here? And you know what she said to me? She said, the God I'm looking for, I think would be found in a place like this. Now here's what she was saying. She wasn't suggesting that God actually dwells in houses built by human hands, but here's what she was suggesting. She was hungry to find a God that did not reflect the culture that she was drowning in. She wanted to find a God who was other who was holy, who was majestic. She wanted to find the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
She wanted to find the God who was found in the person of Jesus Christ who at one hand can exercise a demon with his hands and then call the little children to come to him. That was the God she was looking for. And it's found in a context where we put on display both the personal call of God and yet the majestic nature of who he is. And we do it well in our Anglican tradition. And I'll tell you, we are pressing into our Anglican tradition without reservation. Look at our Anglican Essentials courses where we describe what we do in the liturgy, hugely attended. Our Anglican Foundation course, an eight-week program designed to introduce a person to Christianity and the Anglican way of discipleship. This is a course that will be published, will be used broadly beyond this place. Look at our Pray Daily books that we published in-house this year. This little prayer book guide that makes accessible the prayer book. It's become the core of so many of our classes and programs. And I'll tell you, it's not just happening here. We are becoming the resource church that we always dreamed of being. We have churches throughout the United States ordering copies of this. We have churches even in Canada ordering copies of this. We have a church in France ordering copies of our Pray Daily. People are hungry for this Anglican tradition and we're caring for our campus. I mean, we have this beautiful cathedral-like setting, don't we? This beautiful campus that God has provided for us through the generosity of his people. And yet we have a responsibility to care for this cathedral-like campus so we can continue to put this on display, God's majesty and his personal characteristics. And so we've been restoring it with vestry approval, as you know, we've begun an extensive exterior renovation project for our whole campus. Because we are blessed that our mortgage was paid off a few years ago, we can now absorb the cost of these ongoing renovations in our operations budget over the next few years. It will take us almost a year to complete, but we are putting together between five to 30 years of maintenance that needs to be done on this campus and we're doing it for the next generation. Again, our music and worship, I could go on and on. We are desperate to find some good musicians in this place, aren't we? We have on display here the majesty of God and yet the personal call of God through his word. We are as Anglican Christians distinct in this region we're offering something unique in this region. And I think the Christ Church is probably the best kept secret in North Dallas. Which leads me to my final point. Not only as we come down the mountain for the sake of the world, do we need to be discipled. Not only do we need to be distinct, but we need to be deployed. We need to be deployed. Verse 51 when Jesus comes down the mountain, we read these words that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Set his face to Jerusalem means that from that point on, after this Mount of Transfiguration moment, from that point on, Jesus' whole focus singularly is, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going for this new exodus. I'm going to save the world. I'm going to Calvary. I'm going to my death. He sets his face to Jerusalem. But what does he do immediately after he sets his face to Jerusalem? Chapter 10, it's glorious. Chapter 10, verse 1. 
After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, that's deployment language, sent them on ahead of him, two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. See, Jesus is deploying his church. He's sending us in mission. It was interesting, I was watching when I was sick this last week, I, I got to watch a boy movie with my two boys. Now you all know I've only got daughters, but now I've got both Tiggy and Levi, my two boys. And so we got to watch a boy movie together. We watched Master and Commander. Some of you have seen this, the Russell Crowe film. It's a Navy pick. It's a beautiful picture of leadership. But what I found so struck by as I watched Master and Commander, no spoilers, don't worry, was that it wasn't just this captain's incredible skill and character, but what made him a great leader is he understood his mission orders. What made him a great leader was he knew what his orders were, and he was going to follow those orders. See, Christ Church, the reality is Jesus has given his church his mission orders, and they haven't yet been fulfilled and completed. Matthew 28, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Those are the orders from the commander in chief. This is what Jesus has left us with. And it is our job not to invent new orders, but rather to complete the orders that he's given us. This is the call, the deployment of disciples in mission. Our primary job, my primary job as rector, my primary job as rector is to train you up with my staff, train you up, identify your gifts, and deploy you into mission. That is the primary work of the church, the deployment of ordinary Christians into the world to reach the world for Christ. This year we're going to be examining in a much more concerted way what it means to personally invite people to church. Personal invitation continues to be the number one way people get in the door. You can cancel all your church outreach programming for a year. And if every single person in the church invited their next door neighbors over for dinner and simply invited them during that meal to come and check out their church, we would see an evangelism explosion like the book of Acts. Personal invitation is what we're going to be pressing into more. We're going to look at external marketing. I mean, let's look, honestly, if this is the best kept secret in the region, let's get the word out there that here's where we are. We are a majestic community that emphasizes the personal call of salvation. You can hold those two together. Can you imagine an ad campaign that said, Christ Church Plano, Protestants and Catholics live happily ever after? Deploying you for local compassionate mission works as we've been in, but even more so. Deploying you to reach and expand our reach into the community. Where are we not present in our local community? And expanding our reach globally. 
We have partnered over the years in the planting of churches in this region and beyond, but this year we'll continue to look at opportunities to partner with churches even overseas, new works that can be built where we together can walk alongside the startup of a new gospel community, even in cities that are so central within the biblical story. More coming on that. Because there is a world around us that is desperate for the gospel. People among us are desperate for the gospel. Look, there's a Toronto Maple Leafs fan right over there. He desperately needs to hear the gospel. (laughs) I remember as I was in one church, as we went out the door of the church, the exit sign, it said these words as you exited the church, you are now entering the mission field. You know, we don't need a sign over our door as we go out because every Sunday liturgically, You, with your own lips, and I, with my own lips, we say that. The prayer after communion, each and every week, what do we say? And now, Father, send us out into the world to do the work you have given us to do, to love and serve you as faithful witnesses of Christ our Lord. That's deployment language. Where is the Lord leading us at Christ Church Plano? He's calling us to come down the mountain. He's calling us to come down the mountain for the sake of the world. But to come down from the mountain, we need to be discipled. We need to be distinct. And we need to be actively deployed. Let me tell you when I first came down the mountain in my life, I was on a ferry on the way to seminary, my very first week of seminary, I was crammed onto a vessel with about 2,000 students, college students, going back to school. And in the berth where we were, we had about 300 people jammed in like sardines, just crammed in, not enough seats, people were sitting on top of each other. And so what do you do in an appropriate Western context? You get very quiet, you keep your hands to yourself, your eyes front, and you talk quietly. Well, I met this person sitting next to me that was a third year seminary student. I said, that's, that's a miracle. So we started talking. Now, she was a third-year seminary student. I didn't realize that she went to a different seminary and that it was a pretty liberal seminary, but I didn't know those kind of distinctions at the time. So we're chatting quietly, again, Western-appropriate boundaries, quietly talking about studying theology. All of a sudden, between us, a head shoots between us. It's the head of a young Kenyan student who says in a voice that fills the room, are you talking about our Lord Jesus Christ? 300 eyes were on us. Then he breaks even further cultural tradition by climbing between the seats, over the seats, in this overcrowded berth, stands in front of us and says, I love Jesus. I see the girl sitting next to me, the seminarian, literally turned her entire body away from him and from us. Angry, furious, embarrassed, wants nothing to do with this. And I sat there in that moment and realized this was the linchpin for me. 
This was the moment it was all going to get real or it was all going to die. And I said, in that moment, by the power of God, nowhere near quite as loudly as he had, but loud enough, yes, I love Jesus. And he stood there in front of me, and for the entire rest of the ferry ride, with loud voices, we talked openly with 300 sets of eyes watching us about how we loved the Lord Jesus and what he'd done in our lives. Christ Church, the Lord is calling us to come down the mountain. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.